visual effects create the magic that makes people want to go to the movies. Movies are special effects. We start with an empty frame. Anything is possible. As audiences see through the illusion, the bar just raises. How do we do this now? How do we make this look great? I leave it to the geniuses at ILM. I remember that incredible feeling when all you've got is an idea. It was so exciting. I want to work with people that inspire me. That is the spirit of ILM. It goes back to that original group that were unpretentious, brilliant people. That was our family. We enjoyed each other's company. Yes, we water-slided. Yes, we were immature. But nobody worked harder. We were the Rebel Alliance. fans moof milkers everywhere welcome to episode number 326 of blast points this is jason and this is gabe this is as i'm sure you've heard us talk about a very special episode of blast points right gabe it is we get to talk to one of the the shining stars of the wonderful light and magic documentary and of star wars history in general The one and only Rose Dagnan, she comes on in Light and Magic. Yeah, I love like Richard Edlund is like, we really were saved by Rose, you know, and like everyone's like, it's it's, Rose was the best. And then Rose comes on and her story in the history of ILM, it's just phenomenal. And she is just a phenomenal person, as you are about to hear. So enough of listening to us. How about we jump into our conversation with Rose? So let's start at the very, very beginning. So where did you grow up? What's what's your story before what we saw in Light and Magic? I was born into a working class Irish family here in uh, Northern California. I grew up on the Stanford campus, first of all, in student housing, because it took my dad forever to get his PhD, because when he was three quarters of the way through on his Western Civ uh, PhD, he decided Africa was more interesting. So he did study colonialism in Africa, and we actually went to Africa as a family, I must have been five to seven. 
And um, I ended up going to Stanford because all your kids get to go for free. So um, he had six children. We all went to Stanford for free. Oh, my gosh. No oh, student wow. debt here. Um, <laughs> and I actually was ready to drop out and become a bookbinder for some reason. And um, my dad convinced me not to. And his, his associate, a beautiful Jamaican Africanist woman said, you need to provide, you need to be the voice of women in film. So I thought, okay, that gives me a purpose, women in film. So I, I made my first film. It was a sex education film. It was um, How to Have an Orgasm. I sold it right during college to every uh, health facility at every university bought this film. It is to this day the only serious film on the subject of female orgasm. <laughs> So then I went to L.A. because now I thought, OK, I can do film. I, I like documentaries. But good luck in 1974 uh, finding a job in documentaries. So now it's, of course, a healthy market. And I ended up working at a, on a series of army films where I did everything. I mean, I was wardrobe props makeup, hair, PA, everything. And the uh, production manager on that was named Lon Tinney. And he was hired with the new organization that came in after um, with George Mather. And George Mather was production supervisor, Lon was production manager, and then I was hired as production assistant. And that was in uh, mid uh, 76. So we literally had eight months to finish the movie. Now, as you recall from Kasdan's interviews, George returned from shooting all the live action and he discovered that all the money was gone and there were two elements in the can, no completed shots and two elements. So he had heart palpitations, went to the emergency room and um, really wanted to bring in, as he puts it, grown-ups. So he brought in Mather and Lon Tinney and um, myself. And I, I think I just really implemented George Mather's production management system. He was very organized, as was I. And we just both hate inefficiency. Like, we just shared that. And so um, he stayed in the office all day. And I went out in the field, you know, of the facility at, at Val Jean, and I just made sure, you know, we're getting it shot, we're getting it prepped, we're getting it into optical, we're getting the shots done. And it was, uh, it was not a struggle because we had such a good system. I mean, to this day, ILM uses uh, sort of the dotted system that we came up with where every board was on display and whatever color dot reflected what department it was in. So you always could look at the wall and know exactly where we were. So certainly computers have changed everything, including how you track. They probably use shotgun now. But in those days, we did everything without a computer. Was that system something that had been used before or was it kind of something that had to be adapted for Star Wars specifically? Good question. I'm certain it had not ever been used before because it had been years and years and years since there were any visual effects in a movie. Um, so this was like the most complicated visual effects movie in its time, 1976. 
So I'm sure Mather came up with a system that he had a Bible and we tracked every single element as it was shot. And then did it go to Roto? Was, were the mats ready? Um, and our film control, you know, I, Mary Lynn didn't get any credit in this film because of course so many people got left out of this six hour documentary and Mary Lynn, God rest her soul. Um, she ran film control and film control was editorial. That woman and her little team of women could find any six frame piece of a shot at any moment. She would just stop, close her eyes, and then show you exactly where it was. She was phenomenal. I mean, that must be like, you know, uh, some sort of memory situation was happening with her. You know, my job became following George Lucas around when he was on set or on in town at the effects facility. Cause of course he lived in Northern California. He was editing the movie and then he would come to us about three days a week. So I would follow him around and make sure everything he wanted done got done. The rest of the time I really hung with John Dykstra and he and I would put um, shots together. Uh, you know, he would figure out the sink and I would take all the notes and then we would send that to optical uh, what do we use? RARs, like a thin black and white stock um, to copy all the elements that you could edit in a movie, thick moviola that had been, you know, adapted to handle 10, 12 elements. And you'd put them all together and figure out the sync point and then get that into optical. It was, you know what? It was like John Dykstra said this. Uh, I did a show for the Academy. I produced a show where we compared the all analog tools of Star Wars with the all digital tools of Rogue One, which was kind of a, you know, a forerunner to Star Wars. It told the story of how Princess Leia uh, got the Death Star plans. So they were connected. And um, anyway, John was saying to me, is it too much if I say that we were the Rebel Alliance? And I'm like, no, that is such a great line. I completely stole it for the Light and Magic series. <laughs> Thank God, because someone needed to say it and he didn't. So, um, and I did credit him. I said, John Dykstra once said, we are the Rebel Alliance. And of course that ended up on the cutting room floor. But uh, fortunately I was, I was able to thank George Mather and that didn't end up on the cutting floor because I frankly feel like they, they gave me too much credit. And I learned, um, I had dinner with Sarah Anthony, who was one of the associate producers, and she told me on Monday night that uh, there was a female producer on this who absolutely loved me and who just is totally into efficiency and totally into lists and keeping track of everything. And so she insisted, you know, that I be made this uh, important character, because let's face it, I was a production assistant. I mean, my credit on Star Wars is way low with the driver and the receptionist. And then I became, I stayed in LA while everybody else went on to do Empire. And I was invited to come up, but I was, I was married and he's a musician. Um, and it just didn't feel right to leave. Plus I went undercover through basic training in the army. That's another story. But after I did that in 1979, uh, I called him up, called George and Lucasfilm up and said, I'm ready to be a worker drone again. And they hired me immediately. So I became production supervisor on um, Wrath of Khan, a Star Trek film. And then we all joined forces 
for Jedi. I mean, we had three movies going. We had E.T., Poltergeist, and um, Star Trek. And we all put everybody uh, onto Return of the Jedi, which was much more complex than Star Wars. I mean, Star Wars was like an average of four element shots. Return of the Jedi had you know, 80 element shots. <laughs> uh, it was It was wild. And they didn't like it when I suggested we go to Night Crew. But as soon as I started on Star Wars, I saw we can't do this with just a day crew. We, you know, we figured, George Mather and I figured out that we needed a night crew. And so we immediately started a night crew. And that was Dennis Murin and Ken Ralston would shoot all night. Um, and then that's how we that's how we got it done. On Jedi, at some point, we did switch to a day and night crew as well. Was some of the necessity to do the night crew just because there wasn't enough equipment to go around? Exactly. Uh, not enough stage space, not enough cameras, not enough. Uh, yeah, for sure. I mean, the motion control camera was extremely valuable. And um, I think we had two on Jedi, but only one on Star Wars. So it had to be used day and night. We had so many elements to do. And I remember on um, on Jedi, uh, George had a lot more leeway there, a lot more power, you know, to get it done. I mean, Star Wars was just like a race to the finish line when um, he got back and there was nothing done and all the money was gone. Oh, no wonder he got upset. Um, but we, you know, so he didn't have the space to like throw out a bunch of shots or add a bunch of shots. So he really felt his hand was forced and played in Star Wars. So he was not happy with how that all turned out. And I think that seriously hurt the feelings of a lot of us who worked so hard to, to get it done. And we thought we were doing revolutionary work, which we were on Star Wars. But on Jedi, I remember, gosh, we had this bleak November. And here the movies do in like March for a May release. And in November, George must have cut like 20% of the shots. He just got rid of and added a bunch more. And we all were in shock. So that day I put on, a, it was a Thanksgiving weekend that we heard. And I put on a big party in the hallway where we all sat down and had a beautiful turkey lunch. And we even had wine. And I remember Marsha and George came over to look at dailies and then saw this big table set up. And Marsha Lucas says, I have work to do. I can't afford time to do this. So she laughed and we were all like, Oh no, George, you know, was a good sport. And he sat down with us and uh, participated in, in our luncheon. But that was scary to have so many shots thrown out, you know, literally at the last minute, you know, a few months before delivery and to have so many new shots added. But we did it. That crowd, that 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 is what light and magic is all about. Don't you think? It just captured the essence of the youthful can-do spirit. And I use the word youthful very strategically because we were young. I, I mean, maybe Richard Edlund was 35, 33. <laughs> <laughs> George was only 30. I mean, everybody was in their 20s. Nobody had kids. Everybody, we were friends. We would just stay late at night and we would have parties. And, you know, it was called the country club. I, I think I mentioned that, but I don't tell the story of why. So let me tell you. 
(laughs) (laughs) We had a hot tub. Yeah. Okay. So maybe we shouldn't have, but we had a hot tub and there were a lot of people in it laughing hysterically as John Dykstra took an old refrigerator that was not working anymore and lifted it as high as he could on a forklift and then dropped it again and again and again. (laughs) A refrigerator. Very noisy. Everybody was laughing hysterically as George Lucas, Gary Kurtz, and Alan Ladd Jr. pull up in a limo. Yeah. They get out of the limo. They look at what's happening, and they get right back in the limo and leave. And from that that day forward, we were called the Country Club, which was a very unfair name because it implied that we weren't working hard. And people would, I mean, they'd fall asleep on a couch in the screening room because they were so committed to getting that shot done. And, And people would... I remember at ILM on Jedi, um, in the screening room, we would be looking at material, you know, and George every day would say, how many elements do we need? How many finals do we need? And I would tell him, and that's what he would aim for. Like, and someone in the screening room, maybe an optical guy who had done a shot and made a mistake in the, you know, everything goes through the optical printer so many times to do a final shot. And maybe he left one mat in at the very bottom left-hand corner, and he would say, uh, no, we got to redo that shot because and George would say, if they're looking at the bottom left screen corner, we've already lost them. <laughs> Final. Put it on the CBB list, which means could be better. <laughs> <laughs> so we invented that term. I wonder if they still use that term at ILM. I don't know. <laughs> That's the big thing about CG, and we can talk about that how much that has revolutionized um, everything. Well, yeah, because you were, you were there right at the transition, right? That was kind of was. at the, at the end of your time there, but you were still there. So what was that like for you coming from, you know, the very beginning where kind of yeah. nothing was possible to this, the dawn of kind of everything is possible? That's really a good way to put it. Everything is possible. What happened was there was a, there was a, uh, a road to be traveled. And we had a, a CG group called Pixar. And they were very odd. They were very, very odd in that we were all, you know, friendly and chatty and, and everyone knew each other. And, you know, we, we kind of were within this little box of you, you build the model, you shoot it, you comp it. And over there, they had a whole new way of looking at things and they believed in the black box, you know, and George had been talking about the black box since star Wars. I remember one time walking with him on the stage and he was really disappointed. And I called him out on it and said, what, you know, why are you so disappointed coming out of the screening room? He said, I just wish that I had a black box and could do everything myself. Wow. So he got his black box at Pixar, but unfortunately the motivation there was let's make animated films. And that didn't fit into what we wanted to do with it, which was create visual effects. And we wanted the film to get in and out. You know, you, you, uh, you put the film, you have a a film machine. What was it called? I can't remember, but there was like an in and out film machine that was created. And then of course, all the digital editing that revolutionized editing, digital sound. But at the time, Dennis Murian was really happy that Pixar split 
and that, that got sold to Steve Jobs because now it meant he could build a CG department within ILM and with the focus being on effects. So everyone thought, I mean, we had a hundred people in the model shop at that point working on so many movies. I switched from production when I had three children and I switched into marketing where I was for another 10 years at ILM because, you know, you can show up at nine, nine thirty, and leave at six as a marketing director, but you can't do that for production. So, um, we had this in-house CG group. I was marketing, so we were starting to bring in a lot of work. Everybody wanted to work at ILM. And um, we were not just George's friends, but we really started bringing in all this other work. And that's when, you know, uh, James Cameron came in with Terminator and, uh, and, well, The Abyss first. That was the very first, you know, the water creature in The Abyss. That blew everyone's mind. But at that point, all the guys in CG are like, oh, this will be 10 years coming, you know? No. It was by the time Jurassic Park and we had proven that we could do living, organic, breathing creatures, that I wept when I saw the um, test for Jurassic Park because I saw the writing on the wall and I knew a lot of people were going to be out of work. But ILM and Lucasfilm did a very generous thing. They offered to retrain pretty much everybody. Anyone wanting to be retrained in the digital arts was retrained. Unfortunately for the more physical, you know, the camera people and um, some of them switched over, but like the model shop, only two people switched over, uh, Gene Bolte and, and John, John Goodson. And um, Gene is still there. John is still there. <laughs> and uh, they got trained and they were accused of going, moving to the dark side. I mean, it was very painful because so many people did get left behind. Now, when George moved everybody to the Presidio, uh, I actually rejoined the company in 2007. I had gone to business school and gotten an MBA. The, I was the, like the oldest person to ever get an MBA at UC Berkeley. Um, with the worst math score of anybody <laughs> <laughs> on whatever those tests were. Um, but they let me in and I did great. I got like a most distinguished student award, I'm sure, because I invited George to the class and he came and spoke to 75 people. Wow. Wow. And his message to the class was, you know, you're all wasting your time. You just got to know what the gazin that the gazintas are more than the gazautas. <laughs> I mean, he learned that from his dad, you know, and, um, and he was very, but he also was very passionate in speaking about passion and how if you follow your heart and do, you know, follow your path, you will, money will come. If you set out just to make money, ew, you know, you're not going to be a happy person, but he really emphasized and everyone got together and took a picture, you know, everyone was so thrilled. And right after that, everyone had to vote for like most distinguished students. So that's why I got it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm convinced of it. Well, you, in 1982, you were talking about being production supervisor for Wrath of Khan and that in amongst its many, like, I love the visual effects in the Wrath of Khan so much, but there's the, the Genesis wave effect, which was That's like right. a huge, like, I don't think people even at the time realized that was computer graphics. Did you get a sense of what was to come working on Wrath of Khan? Well, you know that the Genesis effect was on a monitor 
And until then, that's the only kind of visual effect. There was no in and out machine. You couldn't, you couldn't, you know, create the shot and then transfer it to film. There was no way out of the computer. So it had to stay on the monitor. That was the very first time ILM used computer graphics. And that was at George Lucas's suggestion. We could have just done it, you know, traditional animation. But he insisted that we do it. And of course, I, had, I hadn't budgeted for that. So I told uh, the CG group over at Pixar, I said, hey, I didn't budget for this. So I can buy you like, I can give you $10,000. Well, the thing cost a quarter of a million. Wow. Wow. And we made so much money on Rathacon. I don't even want to tell you. <laughs> that we were, because you know, E.T. broke even, Poltergeist lost money, but Rathacon made 100% profit because in those days I had budgeted like we were using all these grips that was not the case Ooh, I feel so bad but um so I bought I bought Pixar like couches and some more monitors because I felt so guilty when I heard what they spent on it but that's what catapulted them to the forefront and I think um what year was the abyss because that was the next time by then we had the in and out film machine. Um, I can't remember whether they helped on the abyss. They did the stained glass man. That was another one. Yeah. Young Sherlock Holmes. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. And young Sherlock Holmes. Uh, but those were the first very two and then came the abyss and then Terminator and then Jurassic. And that's when it changed overnight. All of a sudden we're searching ser- after the abyss, searching, searching for CG people. And um, laying off traditional artists, it was it was super painful. And then Richard Edlin left after Jedi, started his own company. So a lot more competition. John Dykstra had Apogee. So now we were bidding against each other for for jobs. You know, my old friends. That was hard. Um, but ILM has always had this can-do spirit, this fearlessness that um, I, I don't think other companies are lucky enough to have. I recall when Warren Franklin, who was general manager um, at a certain point at, at, at our company, he left to go to Stanford for some sort of executive MBA program. And he, I remember he, he, he would check in with us all the time, you know. And he said, he just came from a class where everybody was in shock because Everyone else, all these other CEOs were saying, yeah, we just can't get our people to care enough. They just don't care enough. And so the quality and and Warren's like, well, actually, our people care too much and we have to rein them in from caring so much. <laughs> and these other CEOs just looked at him like, you lucky SOB, you know, that that you have that problem. And that's so true. I mean, I was always out there going, all right, that's good enough. Let's move on. We can't do another take. Let's do it. Let's move on. I had to, one guy remembers that I pried him off the camera and sent him home. (laughs) It's something I've always wondered about because it's kind of legendary in the first film. Everyone always says like no one knew it was going to be as popular as it was when you were working on it. Like that, that passion that everyone had to make it, so good not just good like incredible do things no one had ever done before 
where did that kind of come from? Like, did people, was it, did pe- did anyone in ILM at that time kind of know like, Hey, if this thing works, this is going to be, this is going to change everything. No, no, we were all so surprised. And I still, to this day, I'm walking down the street and I see a child and their grandparent, both wearing star Wars t-shirts. I mean, that was something very, very different. And, you know, I, I read about George, um, in this really obscure book, I ended up giving a copy to Kathleen Kennedy because she didn't have it. Uh, and it talks about how, what motivated him and what inspired him. And of course, everyone knows about the car crash and all that, but I don't even think the film, the um, Light and Magic covered this. George says the reason he wrote Star Wars was because he wanted to give young people something to believe in that's larger than themselves. Not a religion, so to speak, but the force, something that puts you in perspective. And I think now that we're looking at the visuals from uh, the James Webb telescope, we see how tiny we are in this universe. And so I think he was really onto something. And I think that's what reaches people is that it's all about a world where there is something that's greater than the individual. And, um, you know, when I said we were the Rebel Alliance, I really meant that because we were the good guys that believed in the force, that believed we were going to make it across the finish line. No one ever acted nervous about delivery. No, maybe the maybe the head of production did, George Mather. <laughs> I had tremendous confidence in those people. And I remember at one point on Jedi, um, George, very late in the game, asked for like, oh my God, an, another 80 element shot. And so that was going to go to Ken Ralston's team. And I worked with him and I said, what do you think? Can we do this? You know, can we? And he's like, oh, I don't know. There's just no time. So I go back to editorial and I say to George and his editor, um, can't remember his name. And uh, I said, you know what? Uh, I can't guarantee that we'll get this shot done. We can go for it, but I, I, I'm not comfortable guaranteeing that we will deliver this. And I left and George is like, okay, you know, took the, took the, took the truth. And I go back to my office and five minutes later, in comes this editor, burst through my door, angry as hell. You can't tell George Lucas no. <laughs> How dare you tell George Lucas no. I said, I didn't say no. I said, I can't guarantee it. And we went ahead and started that shot and did deliver it. That's the one that Ken Ralston talks about shooting a shoe in and, um, you know, a couple other weird things like potatoes that look like asteroids. So we ended up delivering that shot. But that's how reasonable George has always been like a producer slash director, not just a director. And I think nowadays, you know, directors with digital and with CGI, they just iterate, iterate, iterate. Let me see it fall this way. Let me see it do this. Let me, let me see that. So the poor team is, is doing a lot more work than you see on the screen. And I think that's sad. I mean, in my day, you had one or two takes that, that, uh, that, you know, especially for a big action miniature that you're going to blow up. You, you didn't build 10 of them. You built one or maybe two, if you were lucky. So, um, 
you know, you had to get it right the first time. And directors were grateful for that, for that effort. And now I'm afraid they just, that's why so many companies have gone out of business. One thing I wanted to ask, because, you know, you started on the first Star Wars when, you know, no one knew it was going to be a big hit, but then you kind of took a break for Empire. So then coming back for Return of the Jedi, where everybody knew it was potentially going to be a huge hit because they'd been so successful with the previous two films, what was the atmosphere like? Like, how was it different kind of having, you know, much more work to do, but kind of knowing that it's going to be appreciated? Yes. That is so true. None of us knew Star Wars. I mean, American Graffiti, we knew had been a hit. So there were some expectations, but this movie looked and felt Star Wars so different than American Graffiti. And it was kind of laughable. You know, some of the scenes were so corny um, (laughs) that we were kind of like, oh God, I hope this works. And I remember I was working with uh, George and some other people at... um, at a, uh, what's that called when you do post-recording in other languages? Anyway, so we're there doing that. It was the opening day, and uh, I'm supposed to go out and pick up burgers, but George decides to go out and get the burgers, and he passes the um, Grauman's Chinese Theater, where people are, thousands of people lined up around the block wearing costumes. Like, they'd already seen it earlier in the day, and now they're back in costumes. (laughs) He came back without the burgers, I might say, and he, and he looked so shell-shocked, and he got on the phone. Alan Ladd Jr. was congratulating him, Steven Spielberg, all these people calling. So um, we were all very shocked, but no one more shocked than George Lucas when, when it struck this chord. And now, what is it, 45 years later, and still kids are, are watching it? I mean, I can't, you know, my kids were never... Uh, in, never mo- um, never impressed with my resume until my daughter, who's like 32, calls me from an airport where she was waiting for a five-hour delay and watched the whole series on her phone. <laughs> and she was so impressed. She goes, Mom, you actually were like, you know, a mover and shaker. I had no idea. You've always talked about John Dykstra and George Lucas, but I never realized. So... That was very gratifying for me. Of course, my son has yet to watch it. And where my hair looks so fantastic in that show, I feel like I should get an Emmy for the hair. <laughs> so what's the, we heard there's a story with the the 1977 Academy Awards, right? There's There's something there that happened or didn't happen. You know, it's so funny. Dykstra has no memory of this. But here's what really happened. He talked to both me, Penny McCarthy, and Cass McCune about going to the Academy Awards. And he decided that I'm the one that deserves to go because I really worked on it. And Penny was like the assistant to Jim um, Nelson, the associate producer, and she did money stuff. And they were good friends. And Cass had just started as John's uh, personal assistant. And um, so I was set to go and I'm so excited and I buy a dress and I, I did my own hair and makeup. And, but like the day before I get a call from Cass. Yeah. Well, John and I, we're kind of a thing now. So I'm going to the Academy Awards. So I'm like, okay. So I go to the Academy Awards anyway, all dressed up. 
and I wait outside with all the crowd, you know, in the in the crowd. And as John arrives with Cass, <clears throat> I scream, John Dykstra, you son of a bitch. <laughs> and I'm immediately like there are plainclothes p- police in the crowd and I'm immediately surrounded. My arms are behind me. I'm walked to my car and I tell everybody it's my birthday. It's my 26th birthday. And I'm with my sister. So I have corroboration. Like why would I have shown up at the Academy Awards all dressed up and screamed that at him if I had no reason? I just, the one with it with Return the Jedi, the space battle at the end, Return the Jedi is still one of the, the most impressive things. I mean, I know Gabe and I, I think ever put on film. How do you even go about planning something that complex? Because I still, when I watch the space battle at the end of Return the Jedi, I'm still just like, how in the world did they do this? Yes, yes. Well, I really have to credit the storyboards by Joe Johnston. He planned, I mean, and George is meticulous. So every single shot was storyboarded and with multiple panels when it required so that you could see that the ship is traveling from point A to B. And then Ken Ralston handled, he was the effects supervisor on all the space battle shots. And he was a machine. He just cranked it out. He had a small crew, Sal Eddie and who else? Um, they, and then I think they did a night crew. They switched to night crew as well. So they had a day and night crew creating elements and you don't put anything into optical until you've shot all the elements. So, but each one can go into Roto and get their mats done and all that. So we just kept everything moving. It was, we had three production coordinators, you know, one for each supervisor and I was in charge of them. And I had an assistant, Warren Franklin, who went on to become my boss, best boss I ever had because I have a problem with authority, guys, <laughs> and I don't like to be told what to do. <laughs> and he just was such a great boss, really the best ever that I've ever had, um, because he would just let me do exactly what I would keep him informed. And that's all he asked. But no, Ken was great. He was a machine. He would do he would do multiple elements every day. I mean, that guy, and he did, wasn't afraid to put chewing gum on a, on a stand and shoot that or, you know, potatoes or shoes, um, just as a joke that you would never see it. It's in the background. No big deal. Have you ever found those shoes or? No, and I like, isn't there, there's the part in Light and Magic where it like stops and there's like little arrows, like look here, look here. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Didn't they do a great job? I mean, 200 different sources for visual material. There were things in there I had never seen. I think I blacked out the first time I watched it. I I watched it again super recently. And even the first time I watched it, there was too much to process. You know, and it made me, it made me, it made me cry. Actually, I got it before the Star Wars celebration at the end of May, but I only watched it on my phone because I wanted to save it and watch it with my family and siblings on the bigger screen. So I remember watching it and I was so moved by Phil Tippett. I had no idea that Phil, I knew he was always an odd duck. And, I, and as I say, in the, I never tried to schedule him. He was so self-motivated. Um, and you just, how rude that would have been to say, oh, where are you? Have you, have you finished your shot yet? You know, whereas with the other guys, they appreciated being scheduled, but not Phil. He scheduled himself. But to have him admit to his um, 
what's that called when you're really up and down? Bipolar. Bipolar. Yeah. yeah. To admit to that. And then he said he would have killed himself if it weren't for uh, stop motion saving him because it got him out of his mind. And, and, uh, and then I love that they ended it with him and, and the story about his daughter, you know, saying, dad, I'm too big to be playing with dolls in my room. And he just <laughs> brings her outside and they start making a movie. Um, that was really sweet. And uh, I, I called him to, to tell him how brave I thought that was. I love that. Yeah. That's the thing with light and magic that I, that I loved. I mean, I, I almost put it like with the same as the, the Beatles, like the, the get back documentary where it's like these, at least for Gabe and I, like these larger than life figures, like Dennis Murin or Phil Tippett or John Knoll. And the same as like the Beatles, like these people, since we were kids, we heard about and kind of idolized, but then knowing them as human beings and as real people, it's just, it was so wonderful. Didn't you love that first episode where they give the backstory and how John pulled this, you know, miscreant group together of his friends who had never done this stuff before. And then and then that scene where John was not invited up to uh, work on Empire or Jedi or anything. And that his little lip was trembling in it. I thought that was so touching. And it was sad, but you know, John is larger than life. He is a he is such a beloved character and has such a good big personality. And George, I don't know, he's just he's not shy, but he's just a lot more um, of an introvert, I think, than Dykstra. And Dykstra is such a man's man, you know, with the racing and the cars and the motorcycles and the electric cars and the and the airplanes. I mean, for God's <laughs> sake, he flies airplanes. So um, it was just, it was a mismatch. And I think John had the upper hand by, it was all his friends. So um, people were loyal to John. And I think that really set the tone for why he wasn't invited up. George likes to have control of his scene. And he had it at, at Jedi. Um, Richard was very much a team player until he left and started his own company. Dennis Murin, my God, he's still, I think he's still like honorary creative director. And then, you know, I was lucky enough to find John Knoll and he just really stood out from all the other interviews that I did as somebody that, you know, would just be a great fit. Here he's risen through the ranks. Now he's creative director at ILM. Wow. No, because that was one thing that we, I think Jason and I both found really fascinating with the, with the documentary too, was that you were so kind of integral in finding John Knoll because you worked with all the kind of the original luminaries at ILM and then bringing in, you know, this little kid who ends up, you know, kind of being the whole next generation of the, you know, ILM. That's right. It's the youth. I always say that it's the youth that, that are fearless that take us that next step. And it's like, well, we've never done that, but let's try it. And I also think it's the youth who don't, aren't burdened by, getting home to the wife and kids or, you know, vice versa, the husband and kids. So um, I'm a huge fan of job sharing. I hate this industry that it burns people out, that people work 16 hours a day. I think that's awful. And I, and I have always, always promoted job sharing. Um, no matter what your job is, I feel like with one day crossover, you could all be working um, eight hours a day. Well, that, that leads into another good question. You were, 
kind of integral in getting daycare at ILM, right? That was something that you pushed for? That's my legacy. I think that's the most thing I'm most proud of, actually. Um, nobody wanted daycare. Nobody wanted to put their kids in daycare. But let's credit Doug Norby, who was the president. I went to him with my proposal. It was going to cost 50000 to set up a daycare I'd already found the people at Marin Day School to run it. It was one of them is the wife of uh, Larry Tan, um, who who really was hired to to build the actual daycare. I didn't actually build it, but it started with my three children in it. <laughs> Fifty thousand investment, and then my three children. But it grew within a month. It there was a wait list, and you know Doug Norby knew that if your children are happy in their daycare, somebody could offer you 50% more money and you're not leaving. So it's a very good investment for a company to have daycare. And to this day, uh, so many people thank me, you know, at ILM um, that say their kids went to that daycare. That was uh, my greatest contribution. I'm very, very proud of that because I love to offer help to women. Um, I, I think this industry is way too... Uh, white male dominant. I love white males. It's fine to be a white male. I'm not criticizing white males. They do great work, but we need more women and we need more people of color and we need more underrepresented people. So now I'm retired, but I volunteer for the Visual Effects Society and I'm um, pretty much running the school outreach. So after we get off this call, there's a Latino college expo with 2000 attendees and they want Latino effects artists to inspire the next generation. So I have to find some Latino effects artists and um, see if they can show up at Cal Poly Pomona on September 10th. Wow. I love that. That's wonderful. Yeah. I, I just, I feel really ever since, um, you know, just the black lives matter and um, George Floyd's murder, I just felt like we as an organization have to do something. And the VES had been resistant with previous management, previous presidents and stuff uh, to even ask the question, are you a man or a woman? You know, are you black or white? And this new president, Lisa Cook, is fearless about it. And actually, you know, we have learned from the USC Lucasfilm report that it's so dismal. <laughs> Our industry is so dismal in terms of uh, people of color and women. But plenty of women, oh yeah, we dominate producing, production, but not technical. And part of it is when you ask a woman who's like a major um, compositor to lead your compositing, they might refuse because they know that's an extra 10 hours a week on top of their already 50 hour weeks. So they need to get home and they need to show up for their kids, you know, back to school night and such. So they, they refuse to take on this duty. Now in my world where it's job share, <laughs> uh, you wouldn't have to give up. You would just still work your eight hours and you can be a, you can be a head of a department. So it's, I mean, you would not believe it was something like 0.0005% are uh, effects, people call themselves effects supervisors who are people, of, who are women of color. Wow. <laughs> like there's one, and some, some woman, some Asian woman I know says, well, who's the other one? <laughs> <laughs> I think that leads into something that your story in Light and Magic, I hope will inspire that 
when people think of jobs in the visual effects industry, they usually think, oh, well, I have to be like John Knoll or a Phil Tippett or a Dennis Muren type of person. I have to invented Photoshop or something. In Light and Magic, it kind of shows that there are a lot of opportunities in the visual effects industry that aren't just being some sort of Mr. Wizard at a computer. I'm so glad you brought that up because there is what the VES is looking for. And and I, apparently ILM is also very actively recruiting and looking for uh, a more diverse workforce. You can be really good at organizing or you can be really good accountant or you can be a lawyer. I mean, you do not have to be an artist to work in this industry. We need everything. And look at how it's exploded. I mean, that's another revolutionary step. First, you know, there was the motion control. Then there was computer graphics. Then there was COVID. Everyone's working from home. That's pretty miraculous. And they don't have to travel to England and Canada to work. So that's been revolutionary in the industry as well. So let's and the expansion. I think we're going to be a $26 billion a year industry. When I started, oh my God, it was Star Wars. We had 3 million bucks, <laughs> you know, and then it, you know, got bigger and bigger, but still, um, I think, you know, 15 million, 20 million was considered a lot to book as revenue in a year. And now that's nothing. That's like a mid, mid range effects budget. So, um, there is an explosion of work because of streaming and we need to expand this industry. We need more young people. I love that. Well, yeah. And I hope again, your story inspires more people and I hope people listening to this even are inspired to something that they thought, you know, they couldn't adore. They thought they could never enter. Correct. No, look at uh, rise up animation. Look what they're doing. I love them. Access VFX. They're mentoring. I think it requires mentoring. And when we reached out to the Visual Effects Society, I think we're 5,000 members strong, about 500 people said, yes, I will be a mentor. Wow. That's pretty nice. So we turned them on to existing mentorships, which turned out to be a lot of work for very little effort. But um, Rise Up Animation, oh my gosh, you can, you know, if you're a, a person of color, you can you can schedule time with someone who can look at your work, look at your reel and give you advice. How great is that? It's amazing. It's amazing that can, yeah, they can happen today. That's wonderful. And all that happened because George Floyd got murdered. I mean, people, people were very responsive in our industry to that. That was like, what? And, and I think it has resulted in a lot of effort to expand this diverse slate. And I think it's so great that Latino College Expo, you know, they Black College Expo, that organization, um, the Black Expo organization has placed half a million students of color into colleges. Like, that's so impressive. Yeah, that's great. It's, it's so, it's good that people are at least looking at themselves and realizing that there is a problem. Cause in, until you can admit that there is a problem, it's kind of hard to get people to find solutions. So it's, it's really makes me optimistic that we're starting to actually talk about this stuff. Yeah. Pay attention because when it came, you know, the Academy is very, uh, they really care about, uh, having women represent them, people of color represent, represented in the Academy. So when I was putting on this show, comparing the all analog tools from Star Wars with the all digital tools of Rogue One, 
they were saying, well, we need more women. We need, and I'm like, there were no women at Star Wars. <laughs> we can't, you can't, you know, make it up. And you don't want me to talk because I'm not an Academy member. So you're stuck. This is, this is what we have. And um, that, that was pretty funny. But, and I did find a, a woman of color who now, Kiri Hart, she was mm-hmm. uh, an executive at Lucasfilm and is now at Pixar. And um, she did a great job of emceeing. Um, and, you know, luckily I could find one woman of color to, to emcee the event. Uh, but you really have to look hard. And everyone says, oh, well, you can't, we'd love to hire some, but you can't find any talented ones. It's like, bull. Just look deeper. Just look deeper. The quick learners, that's what you're looking for. Uh, give them a mentor. Um, they will be right up to speed. Well, and I think that's something that somebody could take away from even Light and Magic, that everyone was going mm-hmm. into Star Wars, just kind of like, what are we doing? We're like, we, Everyone had passion, everyone had talent, but everyone was just needed to be directed in a certain path. And the teamwork that was going on, like everyone making everyone else's work better. That's right. And, and not a lot of ego, strangely. You know, I just remember in the screening room, anyone could, could speak up and criticize and say, oh, I don't like the lighting on that ship or let's try to do this. It wasn't just the effects supervisors that were allowed to criticize their own work. You know, it was um, everybody, like you say, as a team trying to make things as good as possible with the time and money allotted. And that, that was my part. And like, I know the Academy is like, um, I had some friends in the Academy saying, Oh, you should be in it. You know, we should do this. And I look at the parameters and it's like, they only want creative producers. And I said, you know what? My role was always (laughs) not anti-creative. Okay. But I was the side of the grown-up side saying, we spent enough on time and money on this. We got to move on and always looking at my watch. So I, there were too many people that cared about how it looked. I did not as long as it was good enough. (laughs) (laughs) So there has to be that too. I think there's a balance, you know, it, it, you definitely need the creatives to care about the creative, but you don't need the producers to also equally care about the creative. Come on. Somebody's got to get the job done. Well, and it seems like the one unifying trait with between, you know, the, the creatives and the, you know, more schedule oriented too, is just, you need to be able to problem solve and people who can solve problems, they can learn a new skill. They can learn new software the visual effects industry, like a lot of industries, is constantly changing, and it's just finding those people who, if you throw a problem in front of them, they can figure out a solution is is what you need. That's exactly what the documentary talks about too. Is they would just de they would just break apart a problem and find a solution, even when they didn't sense it right away. I wasn't one of them called just think about it. One of the <laughs> just think about it. And it, it's true. You think no. I mean, Dennis is, Dennis would come up with no. And then he realized the next day, oh, here's how we could do it. And, and you know, I just feel like for a producer, your main job is don't withhold information. Don't use it to your advantage or for your own power or ego. Just as soon as you know. That's why I kind of love how computers I used to crave wanting Pixar to spend time on creating a computer system. Cause we had like 
physical boards. And every time George changed a shot or removed a shot, we had to go to like 30 different set of boards and make sure that that camera guy or that roto guy knew that that shot was out. And imagine if you had it on a computer, you could just pull up the shot and see, oh, this just got cut an hour ago. So I don't need to waste time doing, you know, laser bolts for it or something. I, so that never really happened um, while I was in production. And then I'm sure it did after I switched over to marketing. But marketing was a really fun job. Oh, my gosh. I got to go to L.A. every week and um, meet with, you know, major dudes, major. There were no female directors that I met with. Damn. But I met with a lot of great people and um, got to sell ILM, you know, not a hard sell. The budget was harder to sell, but then I would come back and my job was to team. You know, now that I've known, now that I've met the director, I could see who they would like and what producer might go with that effects supervisor and what art director. That was the team, an art director, an effects supervisor, and a producer. And then they would go down and go through every shot and then, then come back and do a budget. And um, that's how we did it for, for many, many years. And it was very gratifying to, to land a job, I must say. I can only imagine how exciting that would be because I know as like a kid or something, I still do this where I watch the end credits or I'm, if something yeah. had really cool effects and I'll watch the end credits and be like, please tell me ILM did the effects for this because <laughs> the effects were so good, you mm-hmm. know? And like, I remember as a kid, like T2 and the abyss and you'd see like, you know, industrial light and magic visual effects and be like, yeah, I knew it. I knew it. That's my, that's my team. That's my home team. But now that it's a $25 billion a year industry, I mean, look at what Weta does. Look at what Game of Thrones, you know, uh, I don't think ILM did any of that. So there are so many talented people. And I am, for one, love the idea that it's worldwide um, and that we're floating all boats and that we're creating, you know, middle class, upper middle class families because these are well-paying jobs. I just think all of that is great and I, I just hope that what Light and Magic does is inspire all the other companies not to be jealous, but to to go after the same thing. Like, let's find that heart and soul and spirit that was there, and let's make sure we have it here. Well, I know we couldn't let you go without asking about one of our favorite things. We're huge fans of the made-for-TV, but not in Europe, the Ewok films, and the the <laughs> The Ewok, I know, I know. We're huge fans. We did a whole month dedicated to the the, the two Ewok films. And you were involved in the Ewok Adventure, a.k.a. Yes. Caravan of Courage, right? Yes. I was pregnant. And um, I remember George had, uh, after, when was I pregnant? At 80, 80, jeez, I should know when my child was born. 84. <laughs> My first child was born December of 84, and I think the movie came out like November or something. But, oh, my gosh, the the grips and gaffers were so attentive to me because I was pregnant. I was big, you know, walking around big pregnant. And they made sure I had a chair constantly pushed under my butt. So (laughs) that was so sweet. I thought, let's see, um, John uh, Kerry, was it? John, who, who directed that? John Cordy, John Cordy. John Cordy, who recently died, bless his soul. He was such a good guy. But he directed it. George wrote it, I believe, or, you know, hired someone to write it. And those those 
stinky little Ewok costumes. <laughs> they were awful and because the you know they they couldn't there was no time to dry clean them in between you know days of shooting and these poor guys would get and gals would get so hot in them and so sweaty and we'd have cold hair dryers blowing in their inside their but no it was um and then that little girl who was starring it the little blonde girl she never did anything else did she I don't I don't think so no he was so sick because the co- she's used to say that the costume made her sick. It was the nerves. It was the stress that we had to shoot around that child for the first week. And then she finally got over her stage fright and did a good job. But everybody was so concerned about my pregnancy. I just, I will never forget that. And um, I think I only produced that. And then I went back to ILM. After that, and George said, "Well, I don't want to see you around here for five years because you just had a baby." And I'm like, "Well, that would be nice, but you know, I got to pay the bills." So he gives me a tiny piece of a point, like an eighth of a point, in Return of the Jedi, which allowed me to stay home a whole year with my baby. Wow. Yeah, and when I came back, I came back as marketing person, and because I was already pregnant again, I thought you couldn't get pregnant. Um, if you're breastfeeding, how <laughs> much for that? Okay. See, too bad no one made a, a a documentary film about that when you were a, a young girl. <laughs> no. Yeah. So there I am pregnant. I have a six month old and I'm pregnant. Oh my God. So I go back to work and I take on the marketing. And that's when I started the commercial division. And because I was just taking call after call from commercial companies and I'm saying, well, we don't do commercials. And I had finally had a stack with about a hundred of them. And here we are laying people off. So I went to the executive committee of which I was part and said, why are we laying everybody off? Why don't we just start a commercial division? So we did. And uh, I don't know why they canceled that division after a few years. It, I'm sure it did very well. Your, your kids watched light and magic. You haven't told uh, your firstborn that show them the Ewok adventure and say, technically you were on the set for this film. I have forgot to tell her. I will. She just FaceTimed me about half hour ago. So I will. She's got her second baby. So now I have five grandkids. Wow. Well, yeah, the, the Ewok movies are on Disney Plus. So you can uh, you can have her watch it. Oh, my God. I will have her watch it because she was definitely with me. <laughs> that would be cute. Okay. I, I mean, I, this is the first time I've ever impressed my own children with my credits. <laughs> they, uh, I've, been, I've been getting so many nice calls and emails from people who saw it and just, you know, appreciated that I was in it and that I was covered because, you know, so many people weren't like Warren Franklin was a general manager for several years there. Tom Smith, several years, general manager, Scott Ross, not covered, not covered. Um, so, you know, they must feel bad about it, but they certainly gave me my screen time. Well, we were glad that you were featured and you are definitely one of the one of the high points for us. <laughs> Thank you so much for saying that. Yeah. When when your story begins, it's just it's it's really the turning of the tide and the story of the original film. And you you come in with such energy too. I think it's yeah. It's, yeah. Well, they really built me up. I mean, my sisters were looking for like, oh my God, they're teeing you up so well. And then Richard Evans saying, Yeah, I think it was Rose that turned us around. I'm like I called him to thank him. I mean, that was nice. (laughs) 
But one funny story about Richard. So I call him after seeing it and seeing what I didn't even remember him saying that when I was watching it on my phone. Maybe they cut it in later. I don't know. But when he said that, I called him and thanked him. And I said, have you seen the series? And he said, no, I'm not even sure if I have Disney Plus. And I said, well, you, you pick up your remote and there's a little blue icon of a microphone and you press that and you say, Disney Plus. And he's like, oh, I'm afraid of my, I'm afraid of my remote. <laughs> Isn't that funny? that here he is like Mr. Technical Wizard and he is afraid of his remote. Well, I don't know. I mean, this has just been an absolute joy. I've enjoyed this so much. I'm so appreciative. Thank you. And I'm happy to promote this fabulous series. Everyone who watches it is so moved by it. And how many people, how many documentaries can you say that about? How many things that are six hours long do you wish were six hours longer too? Like I know. <laughs> I know we won't mention any names, <laughs> but oh my God, the civil war, it just went on and on. But this one, I mean, I'm, I'm inspired now to go watch some more. And I've told everyone you have to watch episode one, even though I'm not in it. <laughs> well, it's all leading to you. So, oh, <laughs> oh I like the way you think. Seriously. Yeah, this was a great treat, and it is always amazing when people seem to be as wonderful in real life as they appear on screen, and her stories were great. And she just seems like a great person in general, and just, you know, going out of her way to use her experience in this crazy industry of VFX to help the next generation as well. Just so inspiring. It was like all six hours of light and magic like capsulized into a one hour chat just absolutely wonderful and we are so grateful to industrial light and magic and lucasfilm for helping hook this up legendary adventure of the past could be as exciting as Star Wars. Here they come. The more you see it, That's where the fun begins. The better it gets. Too fast. Star Wars, rated PG, starts tomorrow at a theater near you. And these last points, too accurate for sand people. Only Imperial stormtroopers are so precise.
So, folks, you know the deal with Apple Podcast Reviews. If you enjoyed this episode, we would love it if you would go over there and write something nice about Blast Points. Tell us why you enjoyed this episode. It helps more people find Blast Points when they're looking for Star Wars podcasts. And leave us a star review on Spotify, too, if that's the way you listen. And make sure you check out our website, BlastPointsPodcast.com, the best place to search for back episodes. And make sure you're following us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And if you're on Facebook, make sure you are a member of our Star Wars Blast Points Super Chill group. If you want to support the show in a different way, we got the Blast Points Army on Patreon, where if you've got Light and Magic Fever... A couple weeks ago, a few weeks ago, whatever, we had our commentary for part one of Light and Magic. And before too long, we will have our commentary for part two. And we will keep going with our Light and Magic commentaries when we can, because there's this little thing called Andor right around the corner that's going to derail us just a little bit. But maybe just just a tiny bit. (laughs) Perhaps you've heard of this Andor that's coming. But that wraps up number 326 uh, conversation with Rose Dagnan. I don't know. I'm still buzzing from this conversation. I might watch Light and Magic again and then listen to this episode again. Is that weird? As long as you're not doing them both at the same time, it's totally normal. (laughs) And even that wouldn't be so bad. Well, we will be back next week, folks, with another brand new episode what's it going to be about nobody knows but until then thank you so much for listening and we'll talk to you soon bye bye may the force be with you goodbye old friend may the force be with you well behaved. <laughs> May the force be with all of you.